Dave Hurst was here not too long ago at the Paranormal Story Slam in October. Dave is a retired Spanish teacher. In his spare time, which is kind of all his time, he, um, he substitute teaches, plays the piano at Advocate Hospital, serves as an adjunct professor in second language methods at Illinois Wesleyan, accompanies students for solo and ensemble contests, writes an occasional poem, and chairs the board of directors for the Immigration Project. He has two adult children, Aaron and Rachel, an amazing wife, Marcia, and a loyal dog, Alfie. Summer and tropical climates make him happy. And in line with that statement, Dave says this about our first month of the year, January is a two-faced frenemy. Please welcome Dave Hurst. Thanks a lot. And I have to tell you, you're right about bananas. They're much better when they grow on trees. So I had an epiphany the first week in January during Epiphany. I was in Chicago, and I was dog-sitting for my grand dog. And you may say, well, how did you have an epiphany at that point? But my daughter and son-in-law were in Costa Rica on a vacation. Lucky them. And I was there in the freezing cold the first week of January. And all of a sudden on the news, it came out that the United States had taken an attack on the um, Iranians. And I was horrified. I was horrified for our nation. I was horrified for my children. I'm like, my God, my children are overseas. What's going to happen to them? And all of a sudden, it hit me. 40 years ago, I was in Costa Rica when the hostage crisis broke out in Iran. And it set up this whole series of epiphanies that I hadn't thought about for like almost 40 years. So I'm going to share some of those, and we're going to circle back a little bit about how sometimes you understand yourself and your nation better when you look at that flag through the rearview mirror. First thing, have you ever thought about just how overly concerned we are about risk-taking in the United States? We are crazed about being safe. We live in a town that was built on having insurance policies. <laughs> really? We drive the speed limit. We wear our bicycle helmets. We don't smoke. We fasten our seat belts. And here I am, headed down to Central America in 1979. Now let me tell you, Costa Rica was not the tourist haven that it is now back then. In fact, the State Department sent me a whole list of things that I should think about before I went. Um, have anti-typhoid shots, have anti-malaria vaccines. I had to think about all of those things before I even got on the plane. And then I get on the plane and I land in Miami and they say that they're going to have to reroute our flight because Hurricane David ooh, was in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. And so as a result, we were going to take the flight along the coast of Mexico to Central America. Now let me tell you, Central America is a quick shot right across the Gulf of Mexico. It's a long shot around the coast. And there were lots of ups and downs. A lot of drinks were being spilled. A lot of people were reaching for the little bag in front of them. And many drinks were poured. And that gave me such bravery on my flight. I was the bravest person getting off that plane in San Jose, Costa Rica. And I was ready for an adventure a day, practically. So what was the most risk-taking thing I did? Hmm. Was it swimming, body surfing in the Pacific Ocean for their first time? You know, I was this kid from central Illinois. I had been in strip mine ponds and rivers and pools. I had never seen surf before. What am I doing? Is that a shark fin? That wasn't scary. I made it through that. 
Was it walking through the jungle not knowing where there might be snakes? No, I did that fine. Was it walking on a volcanic plain and looking in the distance and seeing boulders the size of minibuses falling down the slope? No, nah, that was nothing. It was climbing a strangler fig one step at a time, 125 feet into the air to go ziplining. This was back before zip lining was really popular, and they were really just trying it out then. There was a group of dudes down, they were like going, hey, this could be really fun. And so they found a strangler fig, and they had kind of make little handholds. And so, you know, I'm climbing up there, and like I'm shaking the whole time, and I get to the top, and I look down there, and I go, is this safe? And the guy says, well, you're wearing a helmet, aren't you? <laughs> and he said, besides, Carlos is down there, and he can belay you. And I look down there, and I'm like a six-foot-tall, 185-pound American dude, and Carlos is like a 5'3", 130-pound Tico. Yeah, he's going to belay me. Uh, right. But you know what? I took the leap. I don't have any regrets about taking that risk. That was a fabulous experience. You know, when you go flying through the trees, and you can see howler monkeys, and orchids, and bromeliads, and quetzalis flying in the air, scarlet macaws, that is a risk worth taking. And that was my first lesson. Sometimes you have to decide that the risk is great in terms of that adrenaline rush and getting that adventure. You just have to go with it. But if you have no dare, you don't get any adrenaline. Second thing, though, that I learned is red and yellow will kill a fellow. <laughs> Something we don't have to think about in central Illinois. You know, we are the apex predator. You know, in Illinois, we might have a rabid critter in our backyard. We might have a poisonous spider in a corner that you can take a Kleenex and go, and it's gone. But when you're in Central America, you have to be thinking about eyelash vipers that are like these little golden snakes no bigger than your little finger that like to hide in shrubbery. And if they bite you, you're dead, right? There's no, there's no ambulance that's going to come and get you in the jungle. You're basically done for. Or there are toads that if you pick them up, you're going to hallucinate. So as a result, you know, you really have to be thinking about what it is that you're doing before you do it and know your predators. Are there caimanes in the river that you're swimming? All of those things are reality that folks from the Midwest, we just frankly don't have to think about. Which brings up my third point, and very important, is you have to know how to protect yourself. You know, I travel all over the place in the United States, and I rarely ever have to think about what's going to make me feel safe, right? I know that there's law enforcement. I know that I'm bilingual. I can speak in many different kinds of situations. I know that um, I can get on a train in New York City or in Chicago and travel all around. I have no fears as a traveler. But frankly, when you travel to other places, you've got to look out for how do you protect yourself. And that even means that things like soccer matches. <laughs> Because, I mean, in Central America in the 70s and the 60s, wars broke out at soccer matches. And I will never forget the time we went to a soccer match. Um, my host brother, Jorge, and I went to go see Saprisa play Alajuela, two, uh, two neighboring cantones, like their county uh, soccer teams. And it was at um, Alajuela, and we were rooting for Saprisa. And as we're leaving, my host brother grabs a bottle of beer that he's been drinking from and empties it, you know, takes the last swallow, and he carries it with him out, out of the stadium. I'm going, well, why are you carrying that beer bottle? He says, well, we're going to have to fight our way out. <laughs> and 
he was right. I mean, people were throwing punches at us as we were leaving the stadium because Saprissa beat Alajuela that day, and so we were going to have to fight our way to get back home. The other thing I learned about is when you're in the jungle, you carry a machete. And at first, I used to think, okay, you know, machetes are really handy for cutting through shrubbery and stuff like that. And I used to tease people. I used to walk. I taught in an English school for a while. And I had a friend who always carried a machete kind of tucked in his belt and his pants as we were walking along. And so one time we're walking along just on the edge of the jungle, and suddenly he takes his machete out, and he goes, Fwah! down like this. And I look down, and I go, Dude, why the hell did you do that? And, and I look down, and he points, and there's a coral snake right at our feet, cut in half. And it's like, okay, thanks so much. You know? and, and so if you're going to take these risks, you also have to know how to look out. You know, you're not the apex predator. Self-preservation, protection is always an important thing. Next thing I learned was about food. And one thing I'll say about living in Central America is buyer beware becomes eater beware. You know, we live in a part of the world that has determined our eating habits for decades, right? You know, we're meat and potato people, we eat lots of corn, we eat lots of really kind of bland vegetables. So you get to Central America and all of a sudden there are all these exotic fruits, fabulous, things like maracuya, passion fruit, that when you look at it is hideous, you know, and you open it up and it's kind of this weird color and it has these seeds in it that look like tadpole eggs, and then you drink it and it's delicious. Right, but you also have to get past that gag reflex. <laughs> I remember one time I was at a party and somebody offered me chicha, and chicha is fermented corn beverage, really delicious. It's kind of like a cross between beer and apple cider. And then they explained to me that the way you make chicha is somebody hands you some cornmeal and you chew it up and you spit it into a pot, and then it's the fermenting of everybody's spit that causes it to brew. <laughs> okay, so you have to fight those, uh, those gag reflexes. Or there was a time that we were like walking down the street in a little village, you know, and, and we see this guy selling empanadas. And we say, okay, we have to have these empanadas. They look delicious. And we're eating them. Oh, and they're just so great meat pies. And my friend Rachel says, this meat is so delicious. What kind of meat is it? And the guy goes, like this. <laughs> Never have I had the gag reflex quicker in my life. But, you know, you have to recognize that, you know, food can be paradise but it also can be perilous, and you have to be a little bit brave about how you approach your food. Um, and then the other piece about it is food can cause nostalgic homesickness. You know, when, when Thanksgiving came about, I was really craving pumpkin pie, you know, and none of my Tico friends were really into celebrating Thanksgiving. They had no cause to celebrate the arrival of white men from New England coming to the New World. They just weren't into it. So I found some friends that taught at a missionary school, a Methodist missionary school, and we decided we were going to put on Thanksgiving. My job was Thanksgiving pie. So I had to approximate Thanksgiving pie. I found a local squash. I found the spices. And you know something? I realized that 40 years ago, pumpkin spice was a craze then because it transported me. All of a sudden, that food took me right back to being home in the United States. And it was so nostalgic. So you have to prepare for that. You have to prepare for feeding yourself, knowing what food nostalgia is like and what that means. And that takes me to my final point about nostalgia and a sense of home, because while I was there in November, at the same time was when the hostage crisis happened. 
And I have to tell you that when that happened, at first, I was outraged. You know, how could they dare do this to the United States people? And I, I reflected upon the year before. 79, I had remembered that there were lines at the gas station, right? We were paying a higher price for gasoline. I remember that the Shah had come to the United States to have cancer treatment is what I thought, you know? And then when this happened, I had to read the foreign press about what was going on. And the foreign press told me that the CIA had been involved in seeing that the, the flow of oil came from that part of the world, and that they had been backing the Shah, who had been suppressing the rights of the very people that turned into the Revolutionary Guard and imprisoning them, and that much of the money had been drained from the country and had been backed by Chase Bank when they came to the United States. And I didn't hear any of that when I was in the United States. So that was my lesson about what it's like to look at your country through the rearview mirror. Now, Mark Twain has a quote that I want to share because I love this quote. Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it so sorely on accounts. I feel like everybody needs to travel overseas, especially me, for perspective on risks and safety, on pleasure and peril, but then also to see our country in the rearview mirror. Thank you.